The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. When Gloria Guzman called 911 to report that her paraplegic ex-husband had drowned in the bathtub, authorities grew suspicious. Was this a tragic accident or a woman driven to murder by the man she was now caring for full time? I'm Vinny Politan and welcome to the Court TV Podcast. This week we're diving deeper into this fascinating case with an episode of our original true crime series, Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall. This episode is entitled Drowning in Sorrow. Have a listen. This is the Court TV Podcast. They found a man who was paralyzed, dead in a bathtub. A lot can happen in just seconds. This might not be an accident after all. You have the right to remain silent. At what point when you're starting to threaten somebody as a seasoned detective start to Mirandize somebody? Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. The transcript fills in holes that just can't be filled in. Almost universally, everyone heard a different thing. My God, you guys, what planet are you from? This is the United States of America. We want to get to the truth. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? Well, not when it involves the death of a helpless man in the care of the seemingly devoted woman closest to him. Was she selflessly tending to his every need or had she had enough of his 24-7 demands? Was this a horrific accident or something much darker and more intentionally murderous? There are more questions than answers as this tragic story begins to unfold. Las Vegas is an intriguing, captivating city. It's known for greed, sex, Sin City. You know, the nickname is well-earned. People come to Las Vegas because they want to have a second chance at, at life. They're either running from something or they're coming here for a job. A lot of people who move here were, in a lot of ways, a transient community. So seeing somebody who is a relatively new resident in a situation that wound up in a court case wasn't particularly unusual, though the facts and circumstances of this one certainly do stick out. The police received a 911 call to a apartment in the northern Las Vegas Valley. The paramedics and firefighters were the first to arrive, and they found a very troubling sight. They entered the apartment and found a man in a very large bathtub that was void of water, and he showed no signs of life. Mark Richards was a incomplete paraplegic, meaning he really didn't have use of his arms or legs. He had sensations throughout his body, so he could feel certain things that many people are in that situation can't. But he was bedridden. Glory Guzman was a 26-year-old woman who worked in convalescent care homes and uh, by all accounts was a very outgoing woman who spent her early career caring for others who were deeply in need. Gloria was a caregiver. She was devoted to Mark, took care of him. The paramedics had been there before because Gloria had had to call the authorities there to help with moving Mark in the tub. 
Richard's a tall man. He was 170 pounds, and he can't help at all. And so she could not lift him out. She says he wanted to take the bath because he was uncomfortable. So she put him in the tub, filled it up, and she didn't have a proper flotation device. So she used a noodle, the type of noodle that a kid would use in a swimming and that was positioned behind his back and under his arms. Also in the apartment was her niece, and her niece had spent the night, and she had developed a fever. As she was going back and forth, Gloria's attention was divided. Why on earth would anyone put a quadriplegic in a bathtub and leave them unattended even for an instant? That's a key question here. A lot can happen in just seconds. He was in the tub for hours. And that may seem strange to all of us who are blessed to have the functioning of our limbs and our body. But for Mark, who could feel pain, who could feel discomfort, who relied on pain pills and relied on muscle relaxants for muscle spasms, that time in the tub may well have been soothing. Gloria says that she left the bathroom for about two to three minutes and she came back and he was submerged. She discovered him with his face down, rolled over in the water of the bathtub. When the paramedics arrive, they discover Gloria in a panic that she was trying to desperately administer CPR. They found a man who was paralyzed, dead in a bathtub with no water. And everyone said at first that they thought it must have been an accident. You know, he couldn't fend for himself, and maybe she just walked away for a few minutes, and this terrible tragedy had happened. Both Mark and Gloria were regular users of methamphetamine, the very powerful drug. Both had ingested methamphetamine the night before, and so if both parties are using meth, their judgment is, is impaired. So is it a meth overdose? There were no witnesses. There was no video surveillance. There were very few forensics involved. It was basically a case of Gloria's word. What the police did conclude is that Gloria was the one person who was responsible for taking care of Mark. So she was the one and only suspect in this fatality. The police started asking questions, and some answers to questions from Gloria made them a little bit suspicious. There were discrepancies in Gloria's story. If you think the situation is as bad as it can get, well, it gets worse. First responders expecting to arrive at the scene of an accidental drowning are increasingly suspicious of the circumstances surrounding Mark Richards' death and life. Responsibility points to his sole caretaker and their unlikely relationship. For investigators hoping to get to the bottom of the bathtub drowning, nothing is clear. We have a disabled person who has almost no use of his body, no use of his limbs, and he's in a bathtub supported only by a pool noodle. If you think the situation is as bad as it can get, well, it gets worse, and the worst part is the backstory to this relationship. Mark Richards was at one point a very vivacious, very active man who was tragically paralyzed in a car crash. He always needed assistance to help him, and that's where they actually met, in a convalescent home. 
according to both parties, they fell in love when they locked eyes on one another. And Gloria really at first found Mark to be a very interesting individual who was someone that she cared very deeply for. They became romantically involved and they got married. And in this relationship, she became his sole 24-hour a day, seven days a week, 365 day a year caregiver. And that is an enormous undertaking. If you think about a hospital, there are shift changes and nurses and physical therapists and specialists. And there's a high degree of education and training and skill that's required to do those kind of jobs properly and safely. And Gloria had none of those things. I do believe that there was love in this relationship at first. I also think that the reality here is that you have two people who had a very significant age difference, and you had a 26-year-old woman attracted and in love with a man who basically couldn't get out of bed without her help. The other reality here is that there was a financial incentive eventually involved in her caring for Mark. When people are disabled, there's often state assistance in their caretaking. In this particular case, the state was doing that through financial payments to Gloria. They were married for about two years until they realized that she couldn't get paid by the state of Nevada. Gloria learned that by being married, she would no longer be eligible to receive 840 some dollars every two weeks in money from the state. They wanted to get that social security payment because Mark was on disability. So they divorced, but they continued to live together and they were still in love at that time. He was addicted to pain medication. He had been that way for years. There was a lot of drug use in that home. Mark had a bit of a penchant for drugs, including methamphetamine. There were times when Mark was left alone, especially in the bathtub. The bathtub being a place where Mark would seek solace and, from my understanding, would stay in the bathtub for extended periods of time. He needed Gloria to help him get in and out of the bathtub. Sometimes she would be there with him the entire time bathing, sometimes not. So option one is that it was purely accidental, that somehow he slipped off the pool noodle that was positioned to keep him afloat in the bathtub. Two was that it wasn't properly positioned or that Gloria's lack of being in the room with him the entirety of the time amounted to a serious case of negligence, which rises to abuse, which could also be a potential large penalty. Or the third option was that this was a essentially a cold-blooded killing. The paramedics right away were suspicious. They called the police. The police became suspicious when Gloria changed her time frame. At first she said it was a couple of minutes, then it was five to 10 minutes. Eventually it was 20 minutes before she said she returned to the bathroom and discovered Mark underwater. So right there, you have a discrepancy that sent up some red flags. Then Gloria readily admitted to the police that they were fighting a lot. Mark had informed Gloria that he intended to leave her and be placed in another convalescent home. So the relationship was really unraveling. Gloria was looking at losing her revenue. She was looking at losing Mark and there was drug use and there was a lot of fighting. And when the police started putting this whole puzzle together, they started to become very suspicious that this might not be an accident after all. 
those officers become concerned and they request homicide detectives. When the detectives arrive, they are informed of Gloria's initial statement to the patrol officers, and they take her to an unmarked police car to conduct the interview because the scene was chaotic. Listening to that recording, we could hear sobs of actual sorrow. Probably not the best time to take a vulnerable person into the police car. They did not immediately Mirandize her. They didn't say, you've got the right to remain silent. You've got the right to have an attorney present during all questioning. You've got the right to stop questioning at any moment. And do you understand these rights? They didn't do that. Based on her state of mind and the timeline with regard to just being pulled off of her dead husband, ex-husband, she wasn't going to comprehend or understand a whole lot. And she needed an advocate there. She needed an advocate, and the police were not acting in that role. They were acting in the role of people looking to get someone to confess to an intentional crime, and they served that role above and beyond. They started to threaten her, and they continued on until they got the answers that they wanted. Homicide detectives are keen to get the facts from the only witness to this unexplained death. It's a hectic scene inside, so they bring Guzman distressed and still likely under the influence of methamphetamines to their car for an interview. But her story doesn't quite track. And so what is true and what is not is anyone's guess as they begin to forcefully question her. Only the two involved in this tragedy know for certain, and they're either not speaking clearly or they're dead. The detectives decided to take Gloria's statement fairly shortly after paramedics had pulled her from the life-saving that she was trying to utilize to help Mark. She was clearly distraught. The sheer number of personnel arriving at a homicide scene, it's not just Columbo showing up in his raincoat, it's the whole production. So they took her down to a vehicle and conducted an initial interview. They put her in the car with two detectives. She wasn't free to leave. She was stuck in the car for about an hour and a half. The entirety of the hour and a half long interview really occurred without her rights being read. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. I think law enforcement will disagree that that's an important right for people to not just be aware of, but to actually invoke. I think that law enforcement feels that that right gets in their way of getting to the truth of a situation. And they just started peppering her with questions. When you're in a police car and you're not free to leave, that's the equivalent of being in custody and under arrest. At what point when you're starting to threaten somebody about arresting them for a crime like manslaughter, do you, as a seasoned detective, start to Mirandize somebody? You can decide at any time to exercise these rights and not answer any questions or make any statements. This is all immediately following the death of the man she's been involved with for six years. She's lost him in the most profound way imaginable. And now she's being interviewed with no counsel in an enclosed police car with a police detective. Detective Wong said that she was a witness in his mind and that they were just trying to get the facts and that she was free to leave. 
but he acknowledged that she attempted to open the door to leave and he came back and she didn't leave. Detective Wong also said that he told her on tape that we can stay here for as long as it takes for us to get to the bottom of it, whether it's second tape, third tape, fourth tape. So it was clear based on his own testimony that she wasn't free to leave. And it was clear based on his testimony that he viewed her as a suspect. I think that the homicide detectives had already developed her as the sole suspect for some felonious conduct, maybe even murder in their minds. Usually when you investigate a crime, and you don't know what the cause of death is, you want to rule out different things. Here, they didn't rule out whether or not it was an accidental drowning. They didn't rule out whether or not Mark died of an overdose. They didn't rule out whether or not Mark with his flotation devices slipped underwater. They didn't rule out whether or not the combination of drugs caused him just to pass out and become unconscious and slip into the water. They were really kind of working her together to get to the point where they say that she broke down and confessed in what is a classification of police tactics called coerced or unreliable confessions. Remember, she was in love with this person. She was distraught. She was emotionally unstable. And also, she was under the influence of methamphetamines, just like Mark Richards was. They started to threaten her about, I think that this could be a manslaughter. I think that we could arrest you for felony neglect. And they continued on until they got the answers that they wanted. Gloria made what they considered to be an admission that she intended to harm Richards. That statement, at first blush, is very damning. The police feel they gained an admission of criminal responsibility from her. And then they ceased that first interview. And then they began a second interview within minutes of the end of the first interview. But this time, they do have her sign the waiver of her Miranda rights and ultimately get her to, from their point of view, confess. But is it a free and voluntary confession? It becomes a bargaining session where they're putting out there that she's going to be charged with murder and she's going to jail. was charged with murder. It was a $500,000 bail, which was tantamount to no bail, so she had no money and no income. So she was stuck in jail for about 18 months. Was it negligence or was it murder? Gloria lost Mark that day. And now they want to take her life away too. Armed with what the detectives and later the prosecutors believe is a clear confession, Guzman is arrested for the murder of Mark Richards. She will spend nearly two years in custody before she finally has her day in court. At the defense table were myself, Ross Goodman, and also Gloria Guzman. She was right there, dressed out, despite being incarcerated at the time in the county jail, and we started our jury trial. She's charged with first-degree murder of her former husband, Mark Richards. Please be seated, and we're ready for Mr. Pace. You going to make the opening statement for the state? Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Your Honor, and counsel. Bart Pace, he was an excellent prosecutor. He believed in his case completely, and he thought that this was a first-degree murder case. On February 26th, paramedics arrived at the resident of Mark Richards and Gloria Guzman. They found Gloria Guzman 
performing CPR on Mark Richards, the water was emptied from the tub. There was no flotation device whatsoever in the tub. The only device that could be considered a flotation device was a blue pool noodle on the floor. The moment they saw Mark, they were quite confident he was deceased, but they followed through with protocol, and all signs said he was dead. When they asked her about what was going on in the situation, she indicated that she had been momentarily distracted by family members, and then when she came back to the tub, Mark was face down in the water. Officers Long and Vaccaro interviewed Glory Guzman. Her stories were vastly varied. Started out with a three-minute time window that she might have left him in the tub, and that time window eventually expanded to 20 minutes. She also indicated that she was under the influence of methamphetamine. The police officers felt it a duty to continue to ask her further questions to try and find out what exactly happened here. Just gross neglect or whether or not there had been any intent on the part of Gloria to harm him. It is the state's theory in this case that because of the fact Mark was going to leave Gloria, leaving her alone and without financial support, she pulled the noodle to complete what her intent was, and that was to kill Mark Richards. Homicide detectives had developed and handed over to the prosecution a theory that Gloria had become so frustrated with taking care of Mark thanklessly for all these years at this point that she just decided to end it all by pulling the pool noodle that was keeping him afloat in the bathtub. But there was really no reason that Gloria would have wanted to see Mark dead. Your Honor, counsel, my co-counsel, and Gloria. The strategy from the onset was to convince the jury that the likelihood of this being accidental was just as reasonable as any other explanation. None of you, as we learned during the lengthy examination, have been in the position that Gloria has. None of you have ever had a loved one slip away so quickly and unexpectedly. None of you have been physically pried off of a spouse you loved because you didn't want that person to die. This is an emotional upheaval of the largest and highest magnitude. And in this setting, it would have been great to have people who are sympathetic around for your support, who approach you not with cynicism and mistrust, but with loving kindness. And I would suggest to you that in the early afternoon of February 26, 2005, sympathetic individuals did not show up at Gloria and Mark's apartment. Paramedics are there to save lives, but they are not trained or equipped to deal with the very complex emotions of grief. Instead, the paramedics in this case and the police who followed them started looking for certain things that to them and ultimately to prosecutors, they're saying didn't add up. The defense sought in its opening statement to present Gloria as a kind of a victim as well. They assert that she loved him, she cared for him, she wanted to be with him. Did they really know anything about this couple or their dynamic? And the answer is absolutely not. This was a tragic accident, as the evidence will show. And I think that no one in that situation would want to suddenly find themselves accused 
of something like this. Gloria lost Mark that day. And now they want to take her life away too. Ladies and gentlemen, return a verdict of not guilty. When the paramedics arrived at the scene, they were immediately suspicious that they weren't being confronted with the scene of an accident, but the scene of a crime. As we approached the apartment door, off to the left was the bathroom. In the bathtub was the patient. Can you describe the individual on the top? 38-year-old male laying mostly naked, except for there was a white or a cloth over his groin area. The bathtub was um, empty. Are you sure about that? There was nothing else in the tub with him? I'm, I'm positive. So you didn't see any flotation devices in the tub? Correct. Did you see any signs of life in Mark Richards? No. While she had left him for maybe an unreasonably long period of time, we felt that there would be an opening for us to describe this as either completely accidental or the lowest level of neglect that is available. And so we had to talk about the coroner's findings. Dr. Sims, who's you employed? Uh, the Clark County Coroner's Office. The witness testifying, Dr. Sims, board-certified forensic pathologist. But guess what? He didn't do the autopsy. It turns out that the doctor who did do the autopsy is no longer with the coroner's office. Could you describe for us what was discovered on Mark Richards' body? He was macerated, which means he was kind of wrinkled due to uh, water exposure. He found some frothy fluid in the airwaves. The doctor that did the autopsy just thought that the drowning would be more determinant especially based on the fact that the person had a history of chronic drug abuse. But if you actually polled 100 forensic pathologists, there would be different combinations as to the cause of death. Did you note any controlled substances in Mark Richard's blood? Yes, he had a significant amount of methamphetamine and there were some trace amounts of Valium. Describe that level of methamphetamine and potential effect upon Mark Richards. It was a, at 1,158 nanograms per milliliter, and the therapeutic level is usually in the 50 to 100 range. So it's like 10 times the uh, therapeutic level. Could this level cause uh, result in death? Uh, definitely. Mark Richards had a cocktail of drugs in his system. Gloria had done drugs with Mark, had helped him do the drugs. Could these drugs have been administered as part of a bigger plan for Mark's demise? Did Dr. Knobloch reach a cause of death in this case? The cause of death was drowning. What was the uh, manner of death? A homicide. You can have negligent homicides. There's no intent, but the person that causes the homicide to occur was so unreasonably negligent. When you start to get intent, that's when you're talking about second and first degree murder. Dr. Knobloch concluded in his report that the cause of death was drowning and that the manner of death was homicide. But ultimately, Dr. Sims, if he only relies on the substantive pages of the medical examiner's report, a forensic pathologist, even one as reputable and experienced and as well-trained as Dr. Sims, could not tell you the cause of death, could not tell you the manner of death from that alone. Everything that you're testifying to here today is essentially secondhand from Dr. Knobloch's findings, correct? They're from the documents that I was uh, given. Can you tell 
the ladies and gentlemen of the jury, how the doctor comes to the conclusion of homicide after his autopsy in this particular case. He states that the determination of homicide is based upon the investigation by the Homicide Division of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. We were able to explain that a homicide determination by coroner wasn't a purely medical determination or scientific de determination, but it was very heavily reliant on what was fed to them by the homicide detectives. What was the significant investigative information found in this particular case, which led Dr. Knobuck to conclude that it was homicide? He didn't leave a record. The defense successfully, in my judgment, raised questions about how reliable is the medical examiner's evidence? Not that the medical examiner did something wrong, but simply that he can't answer the question. It's absolutely ridiculous that you can't do a transcript, a correct transcript, that somebody adds something to a transcript. We don't have any trouble. My God, you guys, what planet are you from? This is the United States of America. The state has vigorously argued its case, but the defense has raised serious questions about assumptions the police and coroner made during their investigations. Now prosecutors are keen to have the defendant herself declare her guilt through her own taped statement. They say she confessed it all to detectives the day Richards died. Or did she? You just saw me swear the testimony about being this action shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so what you got? Would you ever help Gloria take care of Mark? Yes, all the time. In what way? Um, I would help him bathe him, um, help him take him out of the bathtub. So about how often would Mark have baths? He loved the water, so I would put him in the bath whenever she had time, but it was more likely once a month. They kept saying he hates water, he hates water, and then a couple, one person said he didn't, didn't hate water, and then the picture, the picture was just, he's there like smiling in water. This is Mark and Gloria. Was this a picture you took? Yes. Uh, approximately what year? That was, that was back in 1989. Is that, is that your daughter, Amy? Yeah. And Mark, what year was that taken? Same year. Can you describe Mark's relationship with Gloria? They were really in love. They were, you know, a typical couple, you know, they had ups and downs, but they, they loved each other very much. Do you know that they filed for divorce in August of 2002? Yeah. And that was for financial reasons? Yes. Yeah. And what was Gloria able to do as a result of them getting a divorce? She was taking care of Mark to be able to survive because he couldn't make it on his check. She still cared for Mark? She loved him. She, she loved Mark? Yeah, she loved him with her heart. At some point, Gloria called you and told you what happened? and then you returned to her house? Right. Um, can you describe to the jury what Gloria was feeling at that time? She was scared. I mean, like, I couldn't even understand what she was saying. She was crying. Was she distraught? Yeah, she was distraught from everything. I mean, I was, I was even shocked to hear what happened, but you could barely understand because she was so emotional, she was crying. I couldn't believe what was happening. It was like a dream, you know, to see what was going on. I couldn't believe what was going on. You were interrogated by the detectives? Yeah. At one part, you said that she fell out of love. Can you explain to the jury why you would have made a comment like that at that time? I was scared to what, the, what he had told me before, that he was going to read the, the Miranda rights to me and put me in jail with Gloria. I mean, why? I mean, I didn't do nothing, you know? 
if I was just telling him the truth, but he didn't believe the truth then. So I just told him he wasn't here. So I could just get out of there and go take care of my sister, that's it. I think it was powerful that no matter if she's a sister or a third party, the fact that the detectives say, that's enough out of you. If you don't tell us what we want to hear, we're going to write you up for manslaughter. I think that's powerful. But I'm not sure how much weight the jury gave it because she was our client's sister. Do you recall the detective on page 15 for the prosecutor saying, hey, don't make me read this card to you. You're lying to me. I want you to stop and take a deep breath right now. Stop for a minute. Do you recall that? Yeah. That would be Detective Long. Detective Long testified that initially he wasn't sure whether he was dealing with a criminal suspect or just a witness in an accidental death. We got the call of an accidental death. A man, a quadriplegic, had drowned in his bathtub. We were initially briefed by patrol officers that arrived at the scene before we did and found out what the su su suspicious circumstances were that we were called. We were going to interview the closest person to the decedent, which would be his live-in caregiver and ex-wife. Gloria had the most information, obviously. I told her that we were going to investigate the circumstances around the death of Mr. Richards, and I asked her if she would talk to me and give me as much information as she could. She said she would. My belief at that time was it was an accidental death. Is it easy for you to conduct an interview in the middle of the crime scene with the coroner going in and out and CSAs going in and out? No, and if we want to tape a, a statement, it's a nightmare. We decided the best place to take the interviews would be the parking lot, so that's where we decided to go, is to sit down in the cars and do the interviews in there. We were handed an official transcript of what Gloria's confession allegedly was. It was not good for Gloria. She was weeping a lot, and so that was really making it difficult to hear a lot of things on the recording, which made it all the more curious that things were coming across so clearly in the transcript. You have the tape, and then ultimately gets put on paper. Yes, we turn the, the tape into our secretaries, and the secretaries have the pleasure of typing up every word we say. Which is not necessarily an independent analysis, especially given their approach to Gloria in the first place. The person who's transcribing it from law enforcement subjectively puts in the words that that person thought that she was trying to infer to. There were some issues with the CD I had. It was incomprehensible in some sections. I send it out to see if we can get it enhanced. And we didn't get it back until a couple days in a trial. And we're going through the audio. And we just started looking at each other. We replayed the audio recording time and time again. We were turning it up louder and louder. We heard something different than what we saw in the transcript finally. So we start pulling people in randomly. What are the words that you hear in this segment with no other context and, and certainly not tainted by the transcript? And almost universally, everyone heard a different thing than what was in the transcription, which was, why would I do this? Instead of, I did it, why would I do it? The transcript fills in holes that just can't be filled in. So this number one example is where it says it was probably more than 10, when in fact, it really says it was probably 10. We knew if we were hearing it the right way, that the prosecutors would have a hard time in going forward with the trial because now their credibility would be lost because they told the jury in opening statements, you're gonna hear from Gloria herself. 
that during the interview that she said that she was mad at Mark and she intentionally pulled out the noodle from underneath him. Now we had seen transcript errors plenty, but this was so significant and really the crux of the prosecution's case because after this moment in the recording is when the police absolutely commit to that this was an intentional murder and start asking her very leading questions, which ultimately she just starts saying yes, yes, yes about. I think most of the transcript was probably, it's probably 98% right. Except for the real important stuff, like when she says, I did it, and on the tape it just says in response, I did. The prosecutor thought she said, I did it. And then the defense said, that's not what it was. It seems to turn the tide a little bit as to whether it was a negotiable case. My God, you guys, what planet are you from? This is the United States of America. It's so important when we're having a homicide case where somebody may go away for the rest of their life, and we've got a transcript that things are added or they're not right, nope. her life's at stake. Why don't we correct it now? We want to get to the truth, too. We're, uh, we're trying to get to the Absolutely. truth. The prosecution's reliance on the confession was now on very, very shaky ground. A curveball is thrown. A discovery is made. In this case, a factual discovery that the transcript doesn't match the recording on a key point. And this becomes the straw that breaks the prosecution's back and brings them to the negotiation table. They were trying to save this woman from a lengthy prison term. First degree murder was 20 to life. What is your formal plea? The murder trial is already underway, but a serious discrepancy in the transcript of Gloria Guzman's tape statement has been discovered. This could completely change her future, her life. Realizing the dangerously shifting ground upon which the prosecution built its case, attorneys from both sides feverishly negotiate a plea bargain. But until the presiding judge approves the deal, this case is anything but over. This is case number C, uh, 211597, State Nevada versus Gloria Guzman. Ms. Guzman is present with her lawyer, state's represented by district attorney's office. The defense made an issue out of the transcription, and I think it carried some weight with the judge. I also think it carried some weight with the prosecution. They realized the corner they were backed into and found a way to negotiate their way to a conclusion that they felt was just. We're outside the presence of the jury. I've been handed a guilty plea agreement where Ms. Guzman has agreed to plead guilty pursuant to North Carolina versus Alfred to involuntary manslaughter. The prosecution made an offer for involuntary manslaughter and offered Gloria the opportunity to enter into that plea via the Alfred decision so she would not have to in any way confess that she did anything that caused harm to her beloved. Under North Carolina versus Alfred, I don't have to say that I committed involuntary manslaughter in this case. All I have to say is that, you know what, Judge, I'm pleading to this lesser offense to avoid a more serious offense, more serious punishment. In lay term, it's called no contest. The defense attorneys, they were trying to save this woman from a lengthy prison term. You know, uh, first degree murder was uh, 20 to life. That's a long time. Ms. Guzman, did you read, sign, and understand this plea agreement? Yes, sir. And you waive the six constitutional rights listed in the plea agreement? Yes. Ultimately, the decision to take a plea belongs solely to the person accused. It's not an easy decision ever. I remember Gloria being both stoic with a streak of emotion. 
You're charged with involuntary manslaughter. What is your formal plea to involuntary manslaughter? Guilty by way of Alfred. She pleads guilty to involuntary manslaughter, to having done an, uh, a lawful act. It was a lawful act to bathe him, even if it was a terrible judgment call, but it was not illegal. And she did this, but because it led to the death that she's responsible, legally accountable for that death. By entering this plea, uh, Ms. Guzman is avoiding the possibility of being convicted of uh, first degree or second degree murder. Court accepts the plea. Okay, let's bring the jury in, Danny. It's a fair enough resolution for the case. Uh, at some point, attorneys have to put their pride aside. I think we were going to get, in the end, a not guilty verdict. But, you know, she was risking a lot. And this was something that she could live with. Well, I guess I have good news for you. Uh, the case has been resolved. I still wanted you to come in so that I could tell you about the resolution. What happened is that the state has offered a plea to involuntary manslaughter. Involuntary manslaughter is punished in the state of Nevada by a, a, a minimum term of one year, a maximum term of four years. No matter what her sentence is, she'll get credit for all the time that she served. It could have gone a different way with regard to the jury, and so this is the best resolution in our minds, and something we asked for from the very beginning, and we weren't going to budge on it, and when they finally conceded, uh, we accepted. She could have been convicted of first-degree murder, or second-degree murder, maybe voluntary manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter, or she could have been found not guilty. When the odds are against you, a lot of times it's in your best interest to at least plead guilty under this uh, North Carolina versus Alfred to avoid, of course, more serious punishment. I thought the prosecution's case was a little weak in the fact that they didn't have a, a motive for murder yet. They haven't proved it. Um, I would have liked to listen to the tapes to find out, but yeah, I didn't think they did a great job of proving her guilty. Most jurors want video evidence. They want DNA. They want undisputable evidence that someone did what they did. You did not have that in this case. Gloria searched her heart for what would be best for her, her family, to try to put the tragedy in the rearview mirror and look forward to the rest of her life. So having a felony on your record is better than the alternative, which is decades of incarceration. And I think that was probably what led to her decision. It's a huge win because had she been convicted of first-degree murder, then she would have gone to prison for 40 years to life or life without parole. So that's a big gamble. Gloria did not get off scot-free here. She spent a year and a half in jail waiting for this resolution. I think it's appropriate that she at least committed uh, involuntary manslaughter. Uh, by getting high when she's supposed to be taking care of this uh, quadriplegic uh, and by giving him uh, illegal drugs to mix with his prescription drugs. And what she did was a criminal act uh, that resulted in death. The prosecution sincerely believed Gloria Guzman was legally and morally responsible for Richard's death. And they wanted to ensure that there was a consequence. She is a convicted felon now. Judge Cherry kept her in custody until the sentencing date, which allowed us to prepare to make the pitch to the judge to give her just enough time that would amount to credit for time served so she could go home to her family. And that's what happened in this case. This was a tough pill to swallow for both police and prosecutors. They firmly believe that this was a homicide. It's a, a resolution that maybe neither party is fully happy with. But to me, you have to look at the prospect that it could have very well been an act of negligence, a mistake, even an egregious one. 
But to get to the point where you are convicting someone of deliberate homicide, an act of murder, imprisoning that person for the rest of their life, I don't think that would sit well with a lot of people. We will probably never know what really happened the day Mark Richards died. It's possible even Gloria Guzman herself isn't sure. But with the Alfred plea accepted and credit for time served, she was able to move forward as a free woman, finally able to grieve the loss of everything she had. I'm Tamron Hall. Thank you for watching Someone They Knew. There you have it, another audio edition of the Court TV original series, Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall. If you want to see more of our shows, they are available to stream for free on our website. Just check the show notes for the link. And you can see me on my show, Closing Arguments, where we dive deeper into the biggest current true crime stories every weeknight at 8 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much for downloading. And as always, please don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.